Hey, welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. Thanks so much for lending an ear. If you're new, it's very simple. Each Painless Podcast is about connecting connecting with and getting to know great people in sports and event marketing. Uh, before we get rolling, a quick something I'd like to call out, bring your attention to. Hopefully, you've already checked out episode 11 of the podcast with Jason Sachs from Positive Coaching Alliance great chat about their work. Uh, If not, go pull that up and hit uh, play next for that one. Uh, Point being, PCA does some great work. Um, The Chicago chapter is hosting a breakfast with champions next Wednesday, June 7th from 8 to 10 a.m. at the Chicago Sports Museum downtown on Michigan Avenue. BTN's Dave Rebson is hosting a panel with former Cubs pitcher Ryan Dempster, Northwestern's AD Jim Phillip, and Aerial Investments' John Rogers. Check on the uh, pod description, and I'll drop the link in there through positivecoach.org. Let's move on now to today's guest, Kevin Donilon of Macaulay Communications. Had Kevin, we had already done an interview, and I screwed up the audio on it. And, uh, and actually, this one's... A little bit of an issue with my microphone for some reason, but Kevin sounds great. So uh, we're rolling with it. Kev's a big Ohio State Buckeye fan and an even bigger Evan Scholar and golf fan. Uh, supports Evan Scholars in a big way. Uh, spent decades in PR, communications, and marketing. Very, very smart, funny guy. We share a few laughs as Kevin explains how he's kept learning and finding new solutions starting with a blank page, one of his stories to share. He also talks about sales training, how that's opened his eyes on finding some answers, the want-tos versus have-tos, much, much more just ahead. He's uh, Twitter at MacaulayCom, at uh, M-A-C-A-L-I-C-O-M-M. His website, just add .com to that, MacaulayCom.com. Check him out. Good people. Recorded May 25th at the Glen Club in Glenview. Let's get connected with Kevin Donnellan. And welcome to the Painless Podcast, Kevin Donnellan. How are you doing this morning, buddy? Fantastic. I love it. We're, uh, thanks to the good folks at the Glen Club, are out today uh, getting the, the big treatment in the boardroom and uh, going to try to go out and slog around for 18 holes after. So appreciate them hosting us today. But uh, before we do that, let's talk, Kevin. Let's let's talk about you. Where did you grow up? Let's get a little background on Kevin Donnelly. Oh, I'm an Ohio boy, Buckeye, Cincinnati, born and raised, St. Xavier High School, the Bombers, all boys, Jesuit high school, Catholic kid. Went up to Ohio State where I was an Evans Scholar, and then the rest is history. How did you How did you get into golf though? Caddying. Uh, one this one summer, I looked around and my friends were all gone. And I came back that fall. Where were you guys? They were all caddying, making money and hanging around, playing softball and basketball and football all day and then making some money. So, I mean, that was purely it. It was a job. Yeah, it I was mean, a job. Basically. Yeah, we called, it, job. we called it summer camp for poor kids, basically. But had you played at all? No. You had not played at no, that point? No, no. And did you start uh, playing then when you were caddying? Yes, I did. And um, embarrassingly, I shot a 144. In the caddy tournament. And that was for nine. Uh, that, well, thank you. Yeah, it was 54 holes. No, it was 18 holes. Needless to say, I didn't qualify. <laughs> well, you qualified for help. But yeah, you know, right, exactly. You know, qualified to pick up tennis, finish, basically. Yeah, finished last place. But uh, so you, you did... Uh, you, you did that, and that helped you to be able to attend Ohio State. Exactly. Right? Yep. And uh, what did you study at OSU? I studied journalism and minored in political science. Thought what? I was going to be a lawyer, but I was sick of books by then. So did you to God. not go on to law school? I did not go on to law school. No. Now, you, you have like, uh, what is it, 14 siblings or something like that? Uh, you come from seven. A family, right? Seven, yeah. Are you the, I forget, are you the like the baby or something? Is that part of the problem? <laughs> where, where are you? Where are you in the sequence? I like to think about it as an opportunity. <laughs> I was the uh, only boy. Oh, seven, yeah, yeah. Six sisters. Yeah, seven sisters. Yeah, oh, less, oh, less one. Oh, so it's eight of you. Yeah, that's eight of us. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good on the that math explains today. That, no, never Everybody mind. says that. That explains a lot. Everybody, yeah, it does. It does. But you know, I say, Chris, I, would, I left the house when I was seven and came back after college. I literally would leave the house every day, every season, go to school, and then come and grab my basketball and go shoot baskets. But I had so many friends 
different time in the neighborhood. It was never, never a problem. So you, yeah, I mean, you're just out. You're active and then um, caddying. You go off Ohio State. You're an Evans Scholar. Study journalism. And then what was happening as you're, this is now for you, uh, late 70s, right? You're graduating oh from yes. Ohio State. I want to make the point to everybody you're older than me even <laughs> you know how did you what did you try to go do were you trying to write were you going to go you know take a break and then maybe go back to law school you said you were tired of books i mean where where'd you go where'd you, you know go? i i really would have liked to have had a job in journalism i had a great internship uh, my junior year with a gannett newspaper out in idaho and i was i was really excited about going into journalism when I graduated, everybody else was because Woodward and Bernstein took down Richard Nixon. Everybody wanted to be a journalist. Um, I concentrated in some political stuff, but a lot of it was in sports. And I started looking for a job, and there were none. It was funny. My options were at the two forts, Fort Wayne or Fort Lauderdale, and those were going to take a while. Now, I could have caddied that summer, gone backwards, or gone and worked on the golf course, but... You know, I needed to find a job, and Procter and Gamble came and interviewed at Ohio State, and I could tell you a story about that if you'd like to know. But uh, I started in their public relations department. It's it's a podcast; you can go as long as you want. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, good. Come on, give me the story. So, can I tell that story? Come on, bring it on. Um, junior year, no, sophomore year. Professor uh, Drenton comes in, broadcast journalism class. Great guy, deep, you know, baritone voice, and says, "We're we're skipping the normal class today." And we're going to talk about your career. And he points at somebody and goes, you know, Rick, you're going to complain because Dory and Bob get jobs because they know somebody. This summer, you're going to go meet everybody in your town who does what you want to do. And you're going to get a lead. You're going to get a contact. You're going to know somebody. My ears, you know, perked up. And I said, well, well I'm going to go do that. So as I was working on the grounds crew, I would scrub up, wash up every day, and then met people from the Cincinnati Bengals, the Reds, the General Electric, uh, PR agencies, anybody in town who did public relations because I thought that might be right. an option did for me. Did you do that at the club, you mean? Or no, you, no, like, no. I, I would, you know, I'd either get on. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I was, you know, doing maintenance, so I'd be digging ditches and cutting oh, greens. and maintenance. Yeah, and I had to well, scrub up. Yeah, yeah, scrub up. And, uh, you know, people were so nice. They'd meet me, you know, we worked till like 3.30. They'd right. meet me from 4 to 6 or whatever. Um, but then Procter & Gamble said, why don't you come down and have lunch with us? And got to go down into the white tablecloth dining room and turned out I met a guy from my parish in Cincinnati and we talked and I met a couple other people. You know, fast forward two years later, they have this sign-up sheet and I sign up and I walk in and Bill Dobson and uh, Jack Reese stand up and say, Kevin Donlin, we're looking forward to meeting you. And I'm like, <laughs> turning around looking. And eventually I went through the whole interview gamut with P&G. But, Chris, this was like maybe 60 to 90 days before I graduated. So it was a stroke of genius, great stroke of luck yeah. that this happened for me. But, you know, for a lot of people out there, it's the power of networking, and I learned it at a young age. That's a great way to break it down even for, for our younger listeners out there would be that, that idea of, well, how do I network or how do I use a network is exactly that. Look at what you think you're interested in, you're suited for, uh, you'd like to do, and meet those people through whatever, through family, friend, contacts, neighbors, can get introduced to people. And it's very interesting, even in, you know, we know it here in Chicago, that as big a town as Chicago is, how small it can get very quickly using the network and you end up bumping into somebody two years later that it really paid off. So anyway, so you had, back to the story, was you were looking at these newspaper jobs. You had been at the, like the assistant sports editor at the paper at Ohio State, right? And mm -hmm. those were kind of on hold. And so then this P&G thing presented itself and you said, all right, yeah. I got to do this. Right? Yeah. And, and then within probably 60 days of working at P&G, I got a call from the... Uh, burgeoning uh, National Golf Foundation, asked me to come down and work for them in Florida, of all places, and with the Fort Lauderdale thing. And I'm like, what do, what do I do? And I stayed at, at Procter & Gamble. Um, that organization has ended up growing to a sizable organization. Um, but yeah, even, even then, there were the temptations to 
to move into the sports area. But what kept you then? Was it that at, at the P&G job at that point, was it was there long-term thinking or was it more, I can't leave this job right now because I just started? Yeah, I, I think it was, you know, never been accused of it before, but integrity <laughs> and character and cheap rent at home uh, for one. And, you know, Procter & Gamble still has a reputation of training people very well. Right. And, uh, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but that was the beginning of an amazing network of people who've gone on to do really, really, really great things. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Like you said, the training, not just from your end of the marketing communications PR piece, but the whole organization, yeah. brand management and logistics and everything, that they do a great job. Well, and you're walking the halls with people. Um, Brian Sweetie, good friend of mine, was in on eBay with Marina Whitman, um, Scott Cook, who started into it, and then this guy... Jeff Immelt, who's running, you know, General Electric. Those guys are walking around, you know, as doofy and as goofy as I am, uh, and eventually go on to great. We all went on to great things. Well, what can I say? Right. Well, they did. At yeah. Least. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting. <laughs> Beginning today, this is going to happen for me. This is it. This is the turning. Now you're about to join the Painless Podcast. There you it's go. All changing. <laughs> Just so you uh, you stayed a couple years at P and G, and then ended up going in. Uh, PR communications agency world for a while after that. Right? Yeah, you know, um, my uh, my late wife comes back from a meeting. We both worked at P&G and said, there's this guy, Jim Millman, with his company, Millsport, and they're talking about this thing called sports marketing. It's something you might want to think about. And I'm like, yeah. So I actually wrote, you know, back in the day, I wrote Jim and uh, I met with him when I was at a, on a trip in New York, and he didn't have anything at that time. We stayed in touch, and I, I'd been in Cincinnati for two years, liked being home. It's a great town to raise a family. Eventually, when you're a younger person, you're, it, it becomes kind of small. Uh, I have you know, seven sisters. I have 65 first cousins. Yeah, and the town was kind of shrinking really quick, but it was, and at the same time, it was fun. I mean, P&G, um, the people at P&G were very involved um, with the USTA, and we brought that major tennis tournament there back in the late 70s, and I got to work on that as a, hey, borrow one of our P&G guys. So I'm like, this sport thing's really cool. But I, I think the siren song of a bigger city was calling me. And if I was going to make it in New York. I was going to make it anywhere. So I, my, you know, Mary, my wife, would say, you know, what is with you? You write one letter and you get a job. And I did the same <laughs> thing. I wrote Burson Marsteller that was working on Gillette at the time in New York. And I got an interview. And then I got a job offer and went to New York to work for Burson Marsteller. That began a string of a couple of different, some of the biggest and best agencies out there in PR, getting that experience that because you did what, Burson? Ketchum, Golan Harris. Um, what, what kind of stuff did you take away on both ends of the spectrum of what did you learn that made you better at either your job or managing people? And then how did you learn to then pass that? You along? know, there, there is an amazing tether through all those agencies of, of client service. That got reinforced in client service just for client service. But uh, one of the things I learned from, I'm pretty sure it was at Burson is, when we got into a client, we would walk the halls to build that client. So our success stories were promoted by ourselves and by engagement with people. I remember we worked on the DuPont account, and that happened there. We did some work with, um, well, later on at Ketchum with the Shearing Plow. Same principle applied there. But, but what was interesting was Burson was always perceived to be a very corporate agency, and it was. And I worked on a lot of B2B stuff there. I went to Ketchum and Golan in really good consumer agencies and got to run the gamut of things to work on. Mm -hmm. Citibank, Miller, uh, Frito-Lay at one point in time, and it, it was fantastic. It, and, I, and I tell people now, you know, Al Golan, may he rest in peace. Mm -hmm. When I went to Golan, we had a floor and a half and probably three quarters of that floors were McDonald's people. Huh. So you got to learn big, big thinking at Golan. And you'd shake your head at the kind of stuff 
that they did, whether it was the basketball game or the high school band or Ronald McDonald House, whatever. So I think client service throughout all those, uh, the creativity to push the boundaries of some things. And it's so funny, full circle things. Uh, you know, at that point in time, it was all about getting the media to believe in your story right. and then to broadcast that story out. Um, now they call it earned media, but we were doing that back then. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that journalism prepared me for that. As in, in terms of how to think that, think through the process of the communication and writing, or in terms of prioritizing, what would you? Why would you say that? That it, journalism, you know, uh, this at, at, at that point in time, if you think about just pure publicity, and you're a, a news person, and you're looking for, you know, what's novel, what has a lot of impact, what has a lot of prominence, you think through what you're there to sell, and you know how to sell it. Better. I mean, I worked. I worked on a thing, uh, Drake Bakeries, and they impact reflective stickers for Halloween. And so we found a costume designer uh, from Broadway who went out and told a story about, hey, you can design a Halloween costume from stuff from around the house. So <laughs> you know, for frugal, economic, you know, concerned people, that was easy, and to make them safe. So, you know, we, we went on TV, and she showed the costumes that she did and where the stickers were. And then for that same brand, uh, they impact baseball cards uh, during, the, during the summer. Oh, okay. And we went out and found a uh, woman who was the publisher of Baseball Hobby News who used to be a teacher who used baseball cards to teach math. <laughs> so that wasn't too hard to get. Hey, there's another way to take your, you know, treat your baseball cards. So kind of stuff, stuff like that, where you had to think, you know, you're not going to just be like, hey, we got baseball cards. Who doesn't? I always called it the and. This and. This plus means that. So, And then when did you come back to Chicago? Because you, was that still agencies or then you yeah, it was, went to uh, Wilson Golf? Was Golan uh, recruited me from Ketchum and I had a chance to stay at Ketchum and eventually run their Chicago office, but it was very, very small office at the time. And Golan reminded me a lot of what Ketchum was in New York. Mm -hmm. So it was a bigger company, a lot of younger people at the time. I came in 1984 and I got to work. They brought me in to work on um, Old Style, Heilman, which was gonna expand beyond the Midwest. Citibank had a remote banking account that I got to work on. So it was really pretty fun stuff. And Golan kept growing. Uh, Rich Jernstead, who we mutually know, mm -hmm. was seen to be, was in charge of pretty much everything outside of McDonald's. So Campbell's was an account there. I didn't get to work on Campbell's, but these other pieces of business Rich was bringing in and, and I got to do them, oh. work on them. And, and so then, how did Wilson Golf come about? Was that, you, you know, did you have a strong pull still that you wanted to work in sports? Or was it more coincidence? Or, you know, how, how did you make that shift to go in-house and uh, sport product heavy? Well, you know, like um, a lot of agency people, probably the same story. Um, Wilson was a client of mine. And we, we were doing everything for them, team sports, uh, golf, tennis. And uh, it was at a time where Wilson was uh, a leveraged buyout. Uh, um, and, and our mission at Golan, and then it became when I went there, was to dress them up to sell. They were um, first Pepsi and then leveraged buyout. And then they wanted to, to sell, basically to take their money out. You know, private equity play back in the 1980s. So they, we were doing such a great job at Golan, they decided, well, maybe, maybe we're at a point where we can reduce our budget, and I raised my hand and said, hey, why, well, you ever thought about doing this in-house? Might have been disloyal uh, at the time. Um, but we were still going to use Golan in some way, shape, or form. Uh, as it turned out, I brought an, um, an account supervisor with me, and she and I went right into what became an in-house agency with both advertising and PR. How was that to pick up the ad side? Um, was that... Uh did you find that as just it's, it's a nice challenge to continue to spread your wings? Was it intimidating? Was it, you know, how did you learn that space quickly? Um, or did you feel like you had that from, you know, the, being at a PR agency and working along with ad agencies? I'm answering the question for you, so I'll be quiet now. <laughs> that, that, that's a great answer. I'm done. 
yeah, advertising is hard, and advertising now is really interesting to watch because every ad is telling a story. And, and maybe at the end there's a product mentioned or the product, you know, visual or whatever. Uh, and, and, and I look back at some of those ads and how copy-heavy they were. Now, you know, you're selling a product that is that was technical. Innovations in tennis rackets, innovations in yeah. in golf, and, and even, in, even in team sports. So there was a, a good transition period, but we had great agencies working for us. We had Bentley Barnes in Lynn. Uh, we had... TLK had done some work for us. So we had good people on the agency side who knew the sports. But I, I will tell you one thing. I wanted one of my missions. Uh, we had Michael Jordan as one of our endorsers was to create an uh, iconic Michael Jordan poster that would go on forever. Yeah. At that time, Nike. And we, we could never get that done. One of my ideas was Michael in the stands watching Michael. Oh. And we could never pull that off you know, in a static uh, poster, um, but yeah, the you know, the best thing about going inside was learning how to work inside. It, it is a totally different beast when you're internal. I mean, hey, you know, I've got the money and whatever, and now you have to be part of a team. You know, an agent comes in, like the Marines lands the beach, and okay, good luck. You're part of the occupied army, and that was a ch more of a challenge in the beginning, was how to service internal people um, because there's a perception that a person has all the time and all the money in the world. And you have to get over that. Yeah. So then, and you did that, Wilson, uh, in-house for five, six years. Yes. So, right? And yes. And then why decide to go create your own shop? They booted me out. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I was teeing you up for, no. for, you know, I figured after all this time you'd have a better answer. No, no, no. Honesty is the best policy, right? <laughs> um, and, and I actually thought it was very smart what they did. By the, um, about maybe halfway in to that point of the career is I took over the golf division and ran all their marketing communications, which one was nice based on my personal interest, but they had the biggest budgets. Mm -hmm. you know, our golf balls were the biggest margin. Our golf clubs were second. So I was running all of marketing communications for golf within our internal agency. And, um, you know, we went through a recession in the late 80s and um, business fell off. And then they reorganized into strategic business units. So staff groups like mine and uh, IT and uh, human resources, even legal, went into a division if your level was commensurate. So at that point in time, I was running all of advertising. So for me to go into a division just didn't work out. So um, I was, you know, odd man out amongst a lot of people. And, and you know, it was really at the beginning of the first uh, Iraqi war and nobody was hiring anybody. And, you know, I, I had a good skill set. You know, I'd done everything. You know, I'd done trade shows, I did catalogs, PR, whatever, but there wasn't a fit. And, and I looked for a while and I thought, you know what, I've always wanted to do my own thing. Mm -hmm. And so I started it. And within that fall nine months, Wilson's Golf Division was one of my clients. Yeah. Um, and then I worked for an entrepreneur who invented kitty litter to help him with an entrepreneur internship. And then I just, you know, Ties in what we earlier said. I just networked the heck out of stuff. Fortunately, Tom Harris uh, was a great advocate for me, helped me get in to start doing some work with Susan Henderson and a really talented group at Miller. Um, and, and this is a fun story to tell about Miller. Uh, we got their player, um, player of the week for the NFL and then their player of the year program. And um, whoever was the player of the week we would send out faxes into the local market to let them know, literally faxes into the newsrooms and whatever. And that was a that was a really nice, easy piece of business. We helped them on their Sharps program with Lee Jansen and Duffy Waldorf. And that was a great a great piece of business. But you know, I I didn't know anybody at Miller when I started my agency. How big did Donalyn PR get? I had 25 people. Wow. Yeah. 25 yeah. really good people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you did that for, you did your own thing for 12, 13, 
13 years and then took a break and then have restarted Macaulay, right? Always worried yeah. about pronouncing it right. You got that right. Macaulay Communications in now 2005. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, why take, I mean, it's a very personal thing, but why take, why did you end up taking that break? And then how did that change? Right. What made that happen? Well, you know, to fill in the gaps, a couple of things happened. Um, we were blessed to have Gatorade as a client uh, through a former uh, colleague, Patty Sinopoli, uh, hired us. And then a, a, a mutual friend, John Maravich, I helped him get a job there. And we eventually moved um Person out of a lot of the business that they had, and we ran all their professional marketing. We ran their, ran their player of the year, their AYSO. Um, as, a, as a foil for that, we also worked um, for Sears, and we're lucky to manage all the activation of every sponsorship that they did. And Which at the time also was, we don't see it now, but that was huge. Oh, it was, Craftsman, it was, uh, oh, truck yeah. and car sponsorship. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And between those two, those are two oh. huge. Oh, Big sports events, Big. lifestyle yeah. sponsors. Oh yeah. And what was interesting is we um, it was an era where we didn't compete for any of those businesses. We were on integrated marketing teams. Gatorade was a little bit more compact than it is now, mm -hmm. and we were we always raised our hand for anything to do, which gets back to the client service thing I mentioned earlier. But within within a short period of time, both of those accounts evaporated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sears made a strategic corporate strategy that we're not investing in those sponsorships anymore. That was a tough phone call to take. Yeah, well, uh, took all the business out, but we had a 60-day, so we were able to do that. So I, had, I was forced to lay off people with that. And then Pepsi bought Gatorade, and they bring all their agencies into a big holding company. Right. So we didn't have those accounts. So we were struggling at the time, and... Sadly, my wife was diagnosed with cancer in the middle of that, um, and we went through a tough 11 months, and I had two teenage daughters at the time. Right. So I basically shuttered Donalyn, yep. um, and, and, and you know what? Um, that was tough. Mm -hmm. Both things. I mean, right. obviously, losing a wife was horrible, um, but losing your, your baby uh, in agency to factors that were beyond your control and you know you, you go to bed every night and think, well, what, what can I have done differently? I mean, we hit when we were trying to rebuild. The towers came down, and that was a two years of brutal, oh yeah, brutal in business. I mean, I remember seeing Economist chart, you know, the magazine where it shows communication spending just literally falling mm -hmm. off a cliff. Right. And I don't, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure you can hold people accountable to that or blame anybody. That's just just the way it was. Um, so when, when Mary passed away, I said, you know, I'm going to shutter this. I'm going to take some time off, make sure these girls are in great shape. And as that gained momentum and my oldest went off to college, I said, I'm going to start again. I'm going to start a consultancy, but I'm going to focus in golf because I have such a depth in that. I, um, relationships with the Western Golf Association, the National Golf Foundation, you You're know, a director. With yeah. WGA, director with the right? WGA and right. Evan, uh, thank you. And Evan Scholar. This is just too good to pass up. Right. So, right. well, it's your, not only your depth, but it also, I think, is reflected, or maybe that some of that depth is because that's your passion, yes. too, that you get that. Yes. And that's why we're going to go play around. Yeah, exactly. Just because we, we both love the sport. Yeah. So you kind of got to hit the, the reset button. You also changed, it gave you a chance to also and take the PR focus necessarily out of it, that because PR's changed. Uh, and you've changed that it's that you're much more of a marketing across the board consultancy, right? I mean, right. how would you uh, position it now of what you're you're doing? Because it's even a hybrid as a consultant is even there's a coaching role that yeah. you take yeah. uh, as well. Like, what how would you position uh, what what you're doing right now? Sure, you know, as in the big buckets, uh, I tell people there are three things I do. I can coach. I can do strategy or I can do consulting. And the coaching can be with a seasoned CEO who pretty much knows what to do in marketing but needs to keep up with things that are changing so rapidly who can. So I'm an outside resource to him or his internal team that he doesn't have time to coach. So coaching on two levels. Strategy is, a, is kind of a different animal where they are – 
bereft of anything and they probably are scared to death of starting. So we create a strategy for them and then I have a virtual team that manages that from web to e-commerce to social or whatever. And then the kind of consulting or what I call partnership is a call that says, get in here Monday. Uh, we just let somebody go or we just got funding, but you've got to be here on site to do that. Now, in a ideal world, I get to pick any one of those things to do and get paid millions of dollars. Uh, right now, um, any type of assignment that generally would fit underneath those, I do. So I'll do ideation sessions for people. If people are looking for staff, I'll help them find staff for them. Uh, I, have a, I have a call tomorrow actually with a real estate, commercial real estate firm who now has funding to do marketing. I'm not sure what we're right. going to do, but it's going to start with some good questions. Well, that's that. well, actually, yeah, and I don't want to gloss over that because I think that that is a perfect example of your approach and I think why that approach is successful that I think people listening would be asking questions rather than coming in with assumptions is like, well, let's figure this out. What mm -hmm. makes sense? How do you empower yourself? How do you teach yourself every day? I think, you know, you've, you've always, uh, in our conversations, you've always got great things. You know, hey, have you read this? Have you seen this? How do you make balance the time to do that, be pitching new business and taking care of your current clients? I don't know. No, no, <laughs> just kidding. All right, and that's all the time uh, we have No, today. no, 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 no. Um, you know, one of my other friends always says, you, why are you always reading? I'm like, well, you know what? I just like to learn. My current girlfriend says I should have been a professor because I just love to be educated, and it's so much fun what we do nowadays. So my quest for knowledge is to help people solve problems and then I just like learning stuff and yeah, there's never been a better time to do that in, in the world of business you know you you brought up something earlier um, I, I have this technique where I just go in with a blank legal pad with a line drawn down the middle and everybody's like why do you have that line drawn down the middle like, well you're going to tell me something and I'm going to write it down and then I'm going to write down what I think about that and go back to you as follow up but the blank page is, you know, it is a blank page, but it's a metaphor for, I, I don't know your problem. Right. It could be, you know, personal to you, or it could be similar to what other people are facing. Right. But when you, and I think it would probably also be important to say that when you're coming into these situations, you're not, you're trying to keep a blank slate uh, and decisions, but you're also, you do a ton of research. Like, I think that's part of it too, right? Like yeah. you work the network, you yeah. ask, Hey, do you know these people? Do you know yes. this particular yep. person or this company? Or I see you've worked with them. What can you tell me? So that you also know questions to ask sure. and things like that. Right. Yep. Yeah. So how do you do that too? Like what's a good tip to, you know, when you're coming into these meetings to have the balance. God, here is a, here's a basic one. Don't ask anybody a question that you can find the information online. Mm -hmm. So uh, how many employees do you have? Why don't you look on LinkedIn? Because that's a waste of time right. for people. Or what was, your, what was your career path? Now, you know, building rapport with people, those are good things to know. But the best part about that is you may know somebody who knows that person who can give you some insights into that. Like my meeting tomorrow, I called a friend of mine. She's not at a competitive firm, but she's in the industry and gave me good endorsements for this guy. So, um, you know, you have to make time for that. If that's, you know, stuff you're doing you know, after the proverbial business hours, then you've got to do it. I right. mean, it's only behooves you. One, you're going to impress somebody that you're not going to go in there and flood them with that information, but you're going to have one of those Columbo-like questions. Oh, yeah, I heard about this, you know, <laughs> and then you're going you're gonna to know. Well, but it's also, I think, Time is also um, a big part of your approach on it, meaning that you're cognizant of other people's time. And the idea is not, hey, can I get a morning with you and yeah. sit down? And no, because everybody's time is valuable and that can be a big put off that it's just, no, I don't want to spend that much time because I, I, I don't have it as much of anything or it's just intimidating. So it's like, what you, you take an approach often of, hey, can I get, can we just get 10 minutes or 15 minutes on the phone or less mm -hmm. or something and figure yeah. out if there's something there yeah. rather than coming in and saying, I have a solution. Yeah. You should do this. Sure. Right. Sure. So how, how did you come to that realization? Is it been, was it an aha or has it been 
uh, transition? Stroke of genius. Oh. No, I, I, uh, I actually went to sales training in the last um, couple of years, Sandler sales training, and they have this no pressure sales. One of their techniques is, you know, I don't know whether we're a fit or not. We can have a conversation and figure that out. And right. do you have, you know, because when you ask for 15 minutes, there's a finite it's going to end. And you know what's amazing? 15 minutes is a long time. Particularly when you shut right, up. If, right. Well, which both of us have a problem with. Yeah, but I was going to point that out. <laughs> but, I mean, once you do, yeah, you can find out a lot. And if you come in, too, like not the how many employees do you have question, but something that's actually going to expose, well, why do you do this or why aren't you doing this? Yeah. Or, well, what do you think about this approach where you can actually get some depth from them? And then you could, okay, now I got it. Now I know what how to come back to you with some recommendations. Yep versus uh, staying top line, yeah. right? Well, and you know, Chris, it can be a simple uh, piece of information. A friend of mine who hopefully will do, be doing work later this year is in the food business. And in between one of our first calls and another one, I said to him, I see you've changed your website. Oh, yeah. We needed to get at a different type of buyer. So when they came to look for us, we looked pretty dismal and outdated. <laughs> And that began a conversation. Well, tell me about that buyer. What's right. different? Who, right. you know, how are they looking? And, um, you know, I hope this summer to do an assessment with them because I think they're very lacking in what I call social selling. You know, yeah. we, we say nowadays that you're disqualified before you even know if you're qualified. People go online and look at you and get a sense of your profile, particularly bigger clients. And with this guy, I think he's doing a bad job of yeah, that. Right. Well, but that, and that's Don't the tell him I said that, well, yeah. <laughs> that's the balance, though, that you have to strike is the um, congenial guy that you are and conversational and light, but that, that, as long as that's also empowering you to listen and learn a few things is important as well as then give some honest feedback. Right. I mean, that's the, that can be, both of those can be such a difference, right? Mm -hmm. That I know from conversations with you, that's the, that's the key is that you'll come back to shows that you listened and picked up on something that I didn't even, you know, I wasn't even aware of. Like when we're talking about, well, what's the next thing? Where, how should I change how I'm approaching a client or whatever? I think that's important for mm -hmm. people to see, but also to be honest yeah. and go, you know what? I think that sucks. Right. And, and not just topically or, you know, superficially, but this, and this is why mm -hmm. you told me you're trying to reach this buyer or that's your, that's your target. But what you're telling me here is you're not hitting them or you're missing that mark. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. And right. here's how you can fix. That's what a client needs yeah. to hear. Yeah. Right. Well, he needs to see his or her own blindness. Right. Right. Yeah. That's what that yeah. is. Right. Yeah. Pointing right. some of that out. Yeah. Whether, they, they may not even, they're blind to the blindness most of the time. Um, sometimes it may just be that, you know, they don't want to hear it, but somebody it tells them to them straight may finally cut through. Anything. Well, can I follow up on yeah, that? Yeah, 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 I know please. it's a podcast, as you say, a, a friend of mine. I just hit, I just delete this part out. Yeah, good. When, you know, a friend of mine who actually was a Jesuit priest when we were talking about something in the area of employee relations, he said there's two things, uh, want to or have to. People want to do it or they have to do it. And, you know, it's interesting within an organization how many have-tos don't get done or they get done in a way that, okay, I was forced to do this so people may discount them because it's not a project that they want to work on. So it's a want-to thing versus a have-to. Um, and the hard part about uh, we're kind of pointing this out, and we've all dealt with companies, and it's kind of like the old metaphor of the manager and the leader, the leader's at the top of the you know, mountain looking down on the forest, and the manager's whacking away, whacking away, and the leader yells down, you're going the wrong way, and the guy yells back, yeah, but we're making some progress. I mean, <laughs> and, and, you know, and you know the one thing I've tell, told my daughters, and, and this is hard. It, it's hard for um, people that really like what they do and people that have a, um, experience, is business is about human relations. And, you know, I mean bringing that horse to the proverbial water is, is hard, hard to do um, because you can, you can create a lot of uh, acrimony. Uh, you can lose harmony. But, you know, the way, the way I look at it, if that's what you brought me in to do, 
in a diplomatic, polite way, I will push you to do that. I have a client I just did an assessment for, and their sales are off by 96,000 units. It's a smaller business, and they've created a new product, and they paid me to do an assessment. I came back with recommendations. They don't want to do anything. And I'm like, wow, I missed that one. No, I, <laughs> I, I think they have um, maybe misunderstood that well, this can be condensed even farther. Let's do something. And for me, that's, that's kind of a, um, you know, a sin that I have. You could say that is I'm, I'm going to be in, in there as an owner with people, yeah. even if they're not paying me. It's like, guys, well, you know, let's do something. And that's just like, I'm sitting right, well, you know, we can't do anything. All or nothing doesn't work. But if I'm not in charge, I got to back off. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's a hard balance, though. Like you said, you start getting ownership into both the company as well as the personal relationships, and it's hard. Like, yeah. come on, you want to see it yeah. succeed. Yeah, yeah. well, it. then you wonder whether you should go to their competitor. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> I didn't say that. Is that, is that recorded? But So, you know, I think the, other, the stuff that you do nicely, I think, for companies as well as how you approach the day is just trying to break some stuff down sometimes so it's not so intimidating, like meet one more person, meet a new person every day, make mm -hmm. a new contact every day, yeah. right? That's part of your philosophy. Yeah. Or the, hey, just give me 10 minutes, right. 15 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, being respectful of your time. And if there's a there there, then we'll move on. Sure. Um, well, you know, you can only control behavior, right? You can't control the results. So, you know, you've, you've played sports. I've played sports. You know, you play great defense, something's going to happen. You know, I mean, if you're diving for loose balls, and I do this every day, by the way, but you know, I mean, that be and and that's the that's in itself can be a reward and can be a stimulation. I have this little score sheet I use every day of you know network contacts, new people, claims I'm going to make, and and I love looking at that at the end of the day and making you know shooting for twenty of those things. And that can be LinkedIn, that can be phone calls, that can be asking for referral, it can be endorsements coming in, outreach, inbound or whatever. And then I love at the end of the week to total all those up. And usually by the end of the week, that number is between 56 and 60. Now really? the, yeah, it ends up like yeah, averaging right around yeah. that. Oh, but, that's, but, the, that's but, but then as I, as I parse my big data even more, <laughs> it's gotta be more new you know, there's got to be a new connections going in there. You know, you got to, I don't know, metaphorically, it's, you got to keep tending the garden, so to speak. And, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I'm writing a blog post. I just finished reading the book Shattered about Hillary Clinton's yeah. campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bill, who was in there, and old school Bill, actually saw stuff going on that eventually manifested itself in the campaign, which was the anger of all these people that eventually voted for Trump. But he had a hunch. He Look had a hunch. That, that was a fascinating insight. Yeah. And you can see why that's why he was so successful. Yeah. And that you you also mentioned something about what was there four or five kind of factions, factions yeah. fighting inside yeah. and not yeah. being able to I mean, right. Yeah, I've got to I've got to read that. We we you know we could talk about that, you know, forever, but you know, throughout, you know, innovation in business, there are people that work off of data. There are people that work off hunches, you know, whether it's, you know, Steve Jobs or whether it was Bill Gates or the guy that runs Uber or Tesla or whatever. Right. And I don't know why I'm going off on that tangent. No, so. well, well, but I mean, what do you look at yourself as? Are you a hunch guy, a data guy? What are you? Well, you know, one of the reasons why I read a lot is so those hunches have some some basis in mm -hmm. synthesis in this bad, crazy mind of mine, um, but you've got to have data on that too. You know, I, I have, uh, in addition to my personal score sheet, I have a little thing whenever I'm getting ready to talk to somebody where I'll quickly look through things on LinkedIn, look through their newsrooms, whatever, to understand what's going on and probably look at one, of the, one or two of their competitors too. And that doesn't take as much time as you think because you can- Well, if, you, if you're smart about it, yeah, that's, yeah. Right. And that's what I, yeah. Because I can see that. I have that issue where then I get drawn in and then it leads me off on another tangent, another tangent. Yeah. You have to be disciplined yeah. about it and go, okay, bang, bang, bang. I'm going to look through these, look through these, right. gather a couple pieces. Well, of when a Cubs score pops up well, you know, on right. Google, well, you got to you know, you right. pay attention yeah. to what's yeah. going on ADD there. ADD and then a squirrel yeah. and then yeah, yeah. that's the problem. But, uh, and then uh, anything else that 
you know you, that we haven't talked about with uh, you know the work that you're doing right now with Macaulay. You know, um, this is a wonderful uh, tool that I found last fall, and I call it my harmony system to do uh, marketing strategy and even just your story. And a friend of mine down at Notre Dame, Jim, hello, Jim Small, uh, is in marketing communications down there. And we knew each other back in the days when he was the publisher of PJ Magazine. And we're sitting around, he goes, Kevin, you know, I work with all these CMOs when he was in Interpublic, and they asked me for, what's your system? I don't have a system. Right. And so, you don't have a proprietary system? Yeah, that right, yeah. Algorithms in uh, how there? How the hell do you do this? And, you know, I mean, there's some benefit to that. So he pulls out a napkin and he writes down this thing, which is, okay, let's talk about it. very simple stuff. Basic, let's look at the audiences. What are the walkaways? What do we want them to think, feel, and do after we're done? What are the channels where we can reach them? And this is one of the most empowering little facets of this model is what does great look like? And then the last thing is, okay, what is the strategy and what are the stories? And... um we did uh, a session um, with one of our mutual friends, and I'll, and I'll keep what we did in confidence, but out of that session came three really simple but I think impactful things. One of them was a strategy to develop his business to the next level mm -hmm. that he wanted to. And a little bit of that blindness might have been in there, denial, who knows, whatever. The next one was to really kind of embolden and organize a list of ambassadors that were already part of his organization and then expand what they were doing both online and then I hate the word offline, but <laughs> what they were doing. And, and it was really similar to what you do with Painless. It was getting the people who do the work to go out and speak on the work's behalf. And um, I've done it, this with a couple other people. I'm going to be doing it. Um, and I think what happens is they figure out there are audiences that are not attended to. There are audiences that just just be forgotten, and there are strategies that integrate with all these things. So it's not like you know I got to do twenty things against you know twenty different audiences. It may just be three. So that's been a great tool for me. That's a that's a great point. The last thing is what, uh, what was a good point because I I don't know oh, I just okay. I'd say that is a transition piece. The uh, the last thing was <laughs> uh, you. Uh, in, in personal um, life, we've talked about you've got two, uh, two, I like to use the word lovely, two lovely dogs. Thank you. Ba badgers. They're badgers. And I've got a wedding coming up. I have Is a wedding. Right? Wedding next summer. Next yeah, summer. Yeah, to my baby. Oh. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. And, uh, but, but the other piece was you're involved with WGA and Evan Scholars. Um, I think you do some stuff with Red Door Society. Yeah, with Gil, Gildas Club, right? And okay, Gildas Club and Daniel Murphy Scholarship Foundation. Yeah. What you know? What? How do you pick those things and anything you'd want to plug on any of those organizations? Well, uh, Gildas, um, you know, it's a it's a spiritual health and wellness center uh, devoted to people and families that are afflicted, you know, are affected by cancer, and they were wonderful counsels to me and my daughters when Mary was sick. And I thought, boy, I'm giving back to somebody who's given so much to me. And the people there are just fantastic. And the board has a lot of people that you know we know. Jonathan, John Harris from Conagra, David Selby from Schaefer Condon, Larry Ward from NBC. So it's a fun, right. fun group a, of people. Yeah, and their executive fun, director, fun Laura Jane Hine, is a golfer, and you know she's been there since it started. You know, and they're probably coming up on 20 years. Um, the Evan Scholars in WGA, I'm, again, it's a give back, pay forward to people that gave me a scholarship. And we have a thing called the Park Club, which is only $250 to join. But when I was graduating school, it was 100 But we all wanted to become Park Club members. Right. Uh, I got nominated and got chosen to be a WGA director uh, in 2009. And my mission there is, one, to make sure the Glenn Club, where we're here today, has the most number of park club members as we can have. And then Josh Lesnick, who owns this club with Kemper Sports, funded part of what we call the Caddy Academy, where young women from around the country come out to courses on the North Shore and they caddy. We have four of them here at the Glen Club. And we'll start to cry now. You know, <laughs> Two of them got the Evans Scholarship um, this past fall. Uh, one going to Miami, Ohio, and one going to Northwestern. And so you know, I think most people would be familiar, but I'd hate to 
skipped completely over it, yep. that Evan Scholars, I mean, they get a full ride yeah. and place to, to live yep. at. How many schools are they at now? I mean, it's We're at every Big Ten school, Colorado, uh, Kansas, Miami of Ohio, Marquette. We're building a house in Oregon. Uh, we have about 940 young men and women in school right now. We want to get it currently, to 1,000. Currently, right. You're currently in school. And, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that yeah. many at a time. Yeah. I, mean, we, I know it's a big, I mean, I know so many folks who've gone through the program. It's amazing. And then it becomes like a, um, well, fraternity, but it's men oh. and women that, that looking out for each other and that supporting the next generation. It's just, it's a neat example and they do great work yeah. and good people involved. Well, so, thank you. You know, we, um, we go out, the alum, and, and present the scholarship at the high schools. And the script we're given from WGA is outside of a service academy appointment, Naval Academy, West Point, it's the most generous scholarship anybody could get. Right. So as you said, it's it's board and it's tuition and, you know, at Northwestern, yeah, it's that's, giant. that's a nice chunk of change. Oh, yeah. Mich- be- Michigan, too. But mostly kids are in-state. That, yeah, that but go. still, even then, it's still. Oh, yeah. I mean, now you look at it, it's not when we were, you were at Ohio State or just a few years later yeah. than that, I was at Illinois. Now it's such a massive amount of debt that you'd come out of. Oh, come God, out yeah. With, right? Yep. And so it, anyway. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, I'm, I can be corrected, but um, anybody out there listening, I think the scholarship money that we give is between 15 and $20 million every year. Right. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Should I do the math on that? No, because no, we'll be here for another couple yeah, hours. Yeah, a couple days. <laughs> Uh, anything else that uh, didn't touch on? I think we, I think we've uh, pretty much covered. Well, everything. you know what's interesting is I, I, I do interviewing for the Daniel Murphy Scholarship, and that has become a feeder program for the Evan Scholars, and that is a program that sends eight-year-old, you know, young men and, and women, you know, they're only thirteen, to private schools all around the country. So uh, Jim Murphy, who was an Evan Scholar at Marquette created that scholarship in honor of his father. And, um, I mean, they've probably sent, you know, they've sent thousands of kids to school. The Evans is up to 10,000 plus uh, over the course of time. But the Murphy kids are, Chris, you ought to come interview someday. I mean, the kids, the stories they tell. And I brought my daughter last year, and she's like, oh, boy. You know, I got to get involved in this group. I said, yeah, you do. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that. Yeah. That's for sure. All right. Well, Kevin, uh, always enjoy the chats. I hope those of you listening enjoy it as much as, as, I, as I do. And as, as we did. I mean, as both of us have in these. Kevin, uh, thank you so much for joining me. You're today. welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, bud. Let's go, uh, let's hit, go hit some balls, let's right? Go, let's go break par. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Kevin. Just as an update, uh, we both played pretty well, um, especially... For, uh, for early in the season. Thanks for asking. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Painless Podcast and please leave ratings and feedback. It's super helpful and very much appreciated. Scroll through the feed. We've got a ton of great episodes, 15 and all before this one that I'm proud of all of them. Uh, you can email any feedback or questions or guest suggestions or sponsorship inquiries to painlesspod at painless.network. Until next time, it's Chris Hartwick saying, stay connected, friends.